Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non-denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we are discussing the priesthood of every believer. If you'd like to follow along in the article, it is CIC issue number 133. You can find that at the website, cicministry.org. Now we closed last week talking about Rome, and this is what we quoted from the article. Rome tried to silence any who would correct her errors and abuses. She claimed that her own prelates were authorized to teach and that ordinary Christians simply had to listen and obey. That is exactly what we are rejecting in this series. Yes, and we're also warning that if other groups that are Christian or have the appearance of Christian do the same thing, Yes. We've already learned these things. We know what we're talking about. You don't disobey us and do what we tell you to do and don't come with a scripture and show that maybe we got something wrong. Let's look at it. Let's study these things. Then we're recreating the same problem. So therefore, the authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer must go together or we have divisions in the church that are not biblical. Exactly. And that's precisely what happens if you won't agree to the, to the confession that they hold to and you won't sign the membership covenant, then you're really just not welcome, including not being welcome at the Lord's table. Exactly. And there's other ways of abusing it that are not so creedal. I wrote a book about the, purpose-driven movement Okay. over a decade ago, and I was reading some of the material that we researched back then. You have to, uh, in that case, sign this oath. In other words, you swear an oath to go through so many days of finding your purpose before you even know whether it's something you should believe or listen to. Yes. Okay, people need to find their purpose. So sign this oath. I swear, and there's a place to sign it. And then when you go searching the scriptures that they cite, you find out they're all misused. Yeah, exactly. Using the flock by making them join something and swear to something so they can have some version of purpose or significance or you're part of this or you're an insider rather than an outsider, whether or not you're converted, is is always going on. The issue is, do you know Jesus Christ? Are you born of God? Do you trust him alone for salvation? Do you believe that he has spoken once for all and that the scriptures are the very word of God? And there's plenty of evidence for that. If you do come to him on his terms, you're part of the family of God, whether you took some oath or not. Yes. Amen. So there's so many versions of this. What I'm advocating is we just go back to the basics, authority of scripture, priesthood of every believer. The prophesying that we talk about is bringing 
forth valid implications and applications of scripture. And we need to look and open the scriptures and understand and understand what God said and believe that and not just take some oath or swear to a creed or make some claim that's not correct. So when we began this series, we discussed the seven functions of priests, and they were these. Number one, the ministry of the word. Number two, baptism. Number three, communion, that is administering communion. Number four, binding and loosing. Number five, to offer sacrifice. Number six, to pray for others. And number seven, to judge doctrine. In this episode, we are going to talk about the second one, baptism. Now, how does this apply for all believers? Well, people have their own view of what baptism is, but the fact is that if you read through the book of Acts, people were baptized when they believed, and that wasn't requiring some prelate from somewhere to be present for it to be a valid baptism. That's right. And they were baptized immediately, not after they'd gone through some church membership class and done all of these things to prove that they were truly a Christian. They heard the gospel. They believed they were baptized. Yeah, it's very common for people to create a version of baptism. Actually, I believe Luther did that himself. Yes. If you believe in the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer, then you don't have to say, well, Luther taught that, so therefore his version of baptism is the correct one. As we said with other things, that's, that doesn't follow. What follows is that this is biblical, and we should judge things by Scripture. And this one is often misused and abused. Okay. And people will create things about baptism that are not valid implications of Scripture, and they confuse the saints, and they end up believing things that are not biblical. And this has gone on throughout church history. So we need to be able to go back and get a doctrine of baptism directly from Scripture. Okay. Now, right now I've been teaching, when I'm teaching Sunday school, I've been in Acts 18 and 19, and we're going to learn some things there about John's baptism and the necessity of receiving the Spirit, which comes up when there are some disciples that didn't understand if there even was a Holy Spirit. But Apollos, who needed to learn something, did know accurately the things about Jesus Christ. So there's things to learn that that we search the Scriptures. But the Bible isn't telling us that if we don't use a certain formula when we baptize someone, that that means they're damned. Okay. Right. And who we were baptized by isn't really the relevant thing. No, it's not. Paul brings that up in 1 Corinthians 1. I preached on that recently. And when he says, well, I'm, I'm glad I didn't baptize all of you or any of you or some of you. Yeah. I'm going from memory here. But the fact is, it doesn't mean that baptism isn't important. But if you were baptized by Apollos, does that make you a worse Christian? Or if you're baptized by Peter, or if you're baptized in the Jordan River, now people think that makes them better Christians. Yeah. Or 
the point of it is that this was instituted by Christ himself and that those who are baptized in the name of Jesus are actually baptized also according to the Trinity because the Jesus only Pentecostals come along and say, well, look at this. The, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, so therefore the Trinity is false. So they come up with an old heresy called modalism, modal monarchialism or whatever. Yeah. Sometimes God is the Holy Spirit. Sometimes God is Jesus. Sometimes God is the Father. That's heretical. So this has troubled people for so long, and including people that I've baptized. And I realize that if they're baptized in the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean they've rejected the Trinity. Or if they're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it doesn't mean that they rejected the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed everything he claims to be. And so the false teachers keep hammering at that. Who baptized you? What formula? When did it happen? How did this happen? So in order to get rid of that confusion, years ago, I said, okay, we're going to cover all the bases. And we'd say, therefore, by the authority of Jesus Christ, I baptize you into the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and so on. Because we don't want people to be troubled. It doesn't right. mean you have to go through all of that. If you were baptized as a believer, trusting in Christ, then you're baptized. Okay. Amen. So, honestly, what does baptism signify? It signifies death, burial, and resurrection. Yes. And faith in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses the analogy of being baptized as they came out of Egypt, went down in the sea, and came out new. Yeah. So it's clear that in Corinth there were problems because of different false claims, and Paul's correcting those. Okay. So in this article, I want to uh, cite Luther and then deal with some of the things that came up. Okay. All right. So you've got a lengthy quote from Luther here. Let's share that, and then we'll discuss. Okay. Here's what he said. Whether they wish or not, we deduce from their own logic that all Christians, and they alone, even women, are priests without tonsure and Episcopal character. He's, by the way, talking about things that they were claiming in terminology they use. Okay. Back For in baptizing, we proffer the life-giving word of God, which renews souls and redeems from death and sins. To baptize is incomparably greater than to consecrate bread and wine, for it is the greatest office in the church, the proclamation of the word of God. And then continuing, the stupidity and senselessness, said Luther, of the papists here sufficiently reveals itself. For they permit the ministry of baptism to all, yet consider the priesthood as their own property and baptism as impossible without their priests. Now, this was basically 
pointing out some of the inconsistencies. Right. There was an emergency situation. This could happen or that could happen. Well, and I was thinking about that today. I mean, some of these things we wouldn't say under normal circumstances, just anybody should baptize anyone. We would typically have the elders of a church baptize a, you know, a member of the church, but that doesn't mean there's never situations where this would be different. And as I was preparing for today, it made me think of Rachel Saint and Elizabeth Elliot, which most of our listeners are probably familiar with the story of Nate Saint and Jim Elliot, and they were taking the gospel to a remote tribe in Ecuador and they had dropped food and visited a few different times. And then when they landed and were approached by the tribesmen, they were all martyred. The, but the story doesn't end there. A couple of years later, Rachel Saint, who was Nate Saint's older sister, and Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of Jim Elliot, returned to that very tribe. And they actually lived there and preached the gospel and established a church among the tribe that had killed their brother and their husband. And one of the issues then that they were faced with was they were two women who were preaching the gospel and people were being converted. And whenever people are converted, there is a church. And so here they were in this position as two women who were the only believers there to start with, who now had new converts that needed to be baptized in a church that needed to be established. And one of the first things they set out doing was raising up an, a male elder out of that tribe to lead that church. But they didn't delay baptism because there wasn't a priest of the church there to do it. Yes, and we see in the book of Acts how various people are baptized. Right. We have the, yeah. Ethiopian, the Ethiopian unit comes to mind for me. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And also there were people who believed and were baptized. but. Simon the Sorcerer turned out to be not really a believer. Yeah. And Peter eventually said, you and your money can perish. You're not part of this. Right. They didn't make him prove he was truly converted before they baptized him. Well, the point is, God knows the heart. Yes. So someone believes and they, they say, I want to be baptized. I'm believing in Christ. And... We baptize them or whoever, wherever, under whatever circumstances. And later, well, no, I don't believe. And they run away. It doesn't mean that we did it wrong. Right. Okay. Because that happened also in Acts. The point is this. This is part of what was ordained by Christ for his church to do in his name as he ascended to heaven. And we do this. And we affirm that God saves people. Now, later in church history, they were so concerned, they had this overblown doctrine of baptism, that they'd make people spend years trying to prove they were worthy to be baptized. Right. And th that still happens in some conservative circles here today. Right. And the fact is, the authority of Scripture, priesthood of every believer, Let's just search the scriptures and see what it says. The significance of baptism isn't who baptized you or what sort of water, but the fact that you died to the old life of sin 
that you bury the old man, yeah. like First Corinthians 10, and that you come out in newness of life. And this is not necessarily proving ordo salutis, which is theological parlance for order of salvation. Right. Okay. These things may happen right at one point, but it's all part of what it means to be a Christian. Yes. And so what we do is we tell people what the terms of the gospel, what it means, explain baptism, and then we baptize by immersion. And generally we have to wait till it warms up enough. <laughs> yeah, we're here in Minnesota. It, it can be kind of tricky in the winter. I remember one time in the, I think it was the late 90s, there was uh, some people, no, it was early 2000. We had a really warm winter. And third week in September, three people said, well, we want to be baptized. They, well, it was still warm enough to go in the water. Yeah. So I went down and uh, I think one of our elders came along and witnessed and we baptized three people third week of September. Yeah. Down at the lake. But the fact is that this high, holy ceremonial really isn't biblical. Right. So I said this, the Bible does not limit the practice of baptism to church authorities. I believe that baptism is a means of grace and that it reminds us that we died with Christ and have resurrection life. It is a visible representation of the gospel and something for us to remember. Amen. And it is a public proclamation of the gospel. While there might be the situation where there's, you know, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and it's just the two of them. In general, a, a baptism is a public thing. And we as other believers go and witness the baptism of new believers because it reminds us of what Christ has done for us. It reminds us of our baptism. It reminds us of the, prop, the, the promises of God. When we go to the lake and we baptize believers, there's quite often draws a crowd. It's a public proclamation of the gospel to those who are out walking around the lake or swimming at the beach or whatever it is they are doing. And, you know, if one of them were to be saved, we'd be willing to baptize them too. Well, what happened this last summer, we we had a drought here. Yes. Last summer in Minnesota. And so four or five people wanted to be baptized. So we went down to a beach uh, on a lake, public lake, and uh, Pastor Eric was doing the baptism, and he had to go out so far he could barely see them out there to get <laughs> deep enough where someone could be baptized. Yeah. There were people watching, and the next week in church here is a, a couple of people who saw that. Wow. Came and wanted to understand what was going on, and this is a proclamation of what God is doing and what he's done and a proclamation of faith in Christ. And so it, it's, a, it's important, but to turn it into some sacrament controlled by church authorities and doled out as they see fit based on things that they want to claim is not the point. And frankly, I do not agree with the Lutheran doctrine of baptism. That's right. You and I 
several years ago now, did a short series on that that listeners can find in the radio archives. Right. So on all of these things, we still are affirming the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. So search the Scriptures. Yes. The significance. And you don't have to prove that you're a good Christian in order to be baptized. You don't have to be catechized for however long to be baptized. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him alone. That's right. And, you know, there's also not age qualifications on this. You know, on the one hand, we reject infant baptism, but there is a trend within Baptist circles right now to withhold baptism from children who are professing faith and appear to have been born again, because it's deemed that they aren't old enough to really understand what all it is. But you know what, if your nine-year-old seems like they have truly been born again, and they are, are showing interest, and they want to proceed with being, being baptized, we also need to not hinder those kids. Absolutely. And the other thing is that many times people are baptized at various stages of their life if they grew up in a Christian home, and conversion happens later because yeah. we can't see the heart, we don't know the heart, and we don't refuse water for those who want to express faith in Christ. And the, the idea that it would be horrible if we actually baptized someone who really wasn't born again that's a danger that's not seen in the Bible as a horrible danger. Right. Okay. Because it happened with this Simon the Sorcerer. And some people uh, can't identify a point where, where they were born of God, but they know when they were baptized. Sometimes kids are converted at a young age and that's okay. Cause that's all according to God's will and God's providence too. Yes. As long as we can't see the heart, and someone expresses faith in Christ and desires to be baptized, you can understand the concept, what it means to trust and believe in Christ, then we baptize according to the institution of Christ and his apostles. God's the one who saves. God's yes. the one who has the heart. And you don't have to bring in some bishop or cardinal from somewhere because somebody important needs to be baptized. This is something that, he, as Luther pointed out, even Rome gave exceptions yeah. as far as who does this. And if someone believes in Christ, then they, they're burying the old man. Let me just cite, as we are running out of time here, let me cite Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death, Romans 6, 3. Yes. So what's the statement? What's the point? The Lord's Supper, which we'll be talking about next, but the Lord's Supper is something that goes on periodically as we gather for the Lord's Supper to remember his death till he comes. Baptism is something that happens once. Right. But... We're remembering his death, and we're remembering that we were baptized. Infants don't remember. 
Right. So that's why it, it doesn't make sense to baptize infants. And the doctrine that baptism is the new covenant version of circumcision is really unbiblical. And even those who state it have such weak arguments. I don't know why they even put them out there. Okay. We've refuted that many times, but somebody's still going to believe that. Uh, nevertheless, we need to remember that you were baptized and that it'd be something that we do in faith, trusting in Christ. So any believer can baptize another believer, though it's appropriate that we have witnesses and that elders or whoever participate. That's how we do it. That's right. You say in the article, though it is often the case that elders baptize people who come to faith, it is something any believer could do. Paul shows that who baptized us is not an important issue. See 1 Corinthians 1, 13 through 16, which we mentioned at the beginning of this program. So this function is legitimately part of the priesthood of every believer. That's absolutely right. And the simplicity of the gospel is so confused because of church history. I'm not saying we shouldn't learn from church history. I'm very interested in it. And I've studied it ever since I became a Christian. When I was in Bible college, I took summer courses to learn more about historical theology and the early church fathers. In seminary, I studied church history every time I got a chance to get an elective. But now, as I survey that material, I see that we really have to allow the scriptures to define the church and our, the ministries of the church and the members of the church. We need to go back to scripture alone. Ironically, one of the most important doctrines that we could even talk about is the biblical definition of the church. Right. And I'm so interested in that and hope by God's grace to do more writing about it. And to that end, that's why I saved Ephesians and now 1 Corinthians to the point where I've been in the ministry for a long time. If we can't go back to Scripture alone to define the church, then... What's the point of any of this? Are we stuck with any air that ever arose in church history has to stick around forever and ever and ever? Because how audacious for someone to think they could go study the scripture and come up with a doctrine of the church. Wow. It's so important that we have the ability to do that. But it doesn't happen. And it's, it's just shocking to me. And as soon as someone like Luther or like Calvin or anyone else identifies true doctrine and does some good exegesis, then as the centuries go on, it gets institutionalized, codified, creedalized, and then that's it. If we want to stay safe, then we need to do this. But it never has worked that way. Exactly. And does God have grandchildren or does, he, or does he only have children? Only as children. Well, so if we affirm that, then why are we so adamant that we set something up so that our descendants 
two or three or four generations from now are Christian, whether they want to be or not. Right. And each generation has to wrestle through these things. And each each pastor elder needs to be able to search the scripture. And so does every believer. But we need to be able to, to defend our beliefs from scripture rather than from creeds. That's what I've said for a long time. And that's why we we study the scripture and we listen and we look for the best reading. Yes. If God's spoken, if we understand that, we can't improve on it. Right. And so we need each other. We need to be brands. And that doesn't mean we're going to throw out what we all know needs to be preached, like the doctrine of God, the Trinity, and, and so on. But we need to know these things and be able to articulate them and preach them, not just swear to a creed. Right. Take an oath. Well, and we would all affirm the major Christological creeds. That's really not the issue. And we even have the ability to look and say, okay, I'm thinking through this doctrine. Let me look and see what, what, what Westminster says about this. And we can compare that to scripture, but scripture determines whether or not it's true, not the creed itself. Exactly. And there's no creedal imperative. Yeah, is the authority of scripture and the priesthood of every believer. We've written about that. And I remember the, when I started that pastor's meeting, trying to do some of this with other pastors. This was in 89, 90, 91. And we'd get together and we'd study things. And one pastor came in and said, well, the problem with uh, doctrine is it kills the spirit, the Holy Spirit is, is just dead. It's just dead orthodoxy. Oh, no. And so the particular pastor said that had been ordained, maybe Lutheran. I don't remember which one it was. So I asked when we were having this meeting, okay, so what was it that you swore to that killed you? Well, then he cited, well, whatever creed it was, and it was had to do with the resurrection of Christ and the doctrines and so on. Okay. So how did you die by believing that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead? How did that kill you? Oh, I didn't actually believe it. Oh, no. So what, what he thought was this, the doctrine killed him. And I said, no, I think what killed you was unbelief. That's right. He, he had never been born again in the first place. Right. And another pastor that I worked with, for, for a long time, said he actually was ordained as a Lutheran. And when they had the ordination ceremony at the end of the seminary, the robes and all the stuff, which I guess you could claim, I wouldn't want to wear a robe. What does yeah. that mean? I'm better than you. I'm important and you're not. But anyhow, so they do this. And at the end of it, one after another was saying, well, we got all that nonsense over with. I don't believe any of that junk. Oh, and now no. we can go be ordained and be in the ministry. Wow. Listeners, unbelief kills you, not true Christian doctrine. And by forcing people to say they believe what they don't believe, you are not helping. You're not causing people to give honor to God who has spoken. 
So if you don't really believe it, and you never did believe it, and you aren't born of the Spirit, raising your hand, say, I believe this creed, I swear to it, I'm an ordained minister, I believe in whatever it is, Concord, Westminster, whatever, I swear, I believe. But you don't really. So then how did the creed make you orthodox? Right, it didn't. If you don't have the life of God and a hunger for the truth and a love for the truth and a willingness to search the scriptures, taking an oath won't make you holy. Amen. So unbelief kills people. Creeds may have facts that are accurate, but if you don't believe that Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, and you don't believe that he hears your prayers, and you don't believe God actually raised him from the dead, that he ascended to heaven, then your unbelief will kill you, whatever you say about your creed. That's right. We are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles at the website, cicministry.org. While you're there, click on contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramis. And Bob DeWay. We'll see you next week.